0: well go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 keep your Bibles handy uh, this morning as we will be uh, moving through it hopefully not at any breakneck pace I will do my best to meter um, my my pace as i recognize that what it is to uh, teach this morning and preach this morning is something uh, that will probably rest upon you in some form or fashion as they say as drinking from a fire hose and so uh as we uh as we as we uh, sit under the teaching and preaching of the word, I trust that though it will come in uh, in waves that as they crash upon the shore of your mind, that the Lord by his spirit would illuminate them to you and generate uh, love and curiosity and desire to know more of this redemption, one for us in Christ. So as we've been working through this epistle, this letter to the Ephesians, we've recognized that that Paul has turned now from doctrine to devotion at the beginning of chapter 4 that he intends to show that there is a earthly reality to the exalted Christ he had spent three chapters uh, speaking of uh, the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ and so this earthly reality of the exalted Christ comes in the form of unity in chapters 4 and 5 we see Paul uh, taking great pains to express that the church's spiritual unity is to be visible. That though it is spirit wrought and so uh, wrought in a um, in an invisible realm so to speak according to the Holy Spirit it is actually to be visible. How do we know that we possess this unity is because we live according to it. That we diligently desire to preserve it. That we walk in a manner worthy that uh, we do so in light of the truth of scripture that we don't always feel united to one another Uh, for me these last couple weeks you don't feel united to people you don't see it's just uh, I think the human condition and yet if you rest if I were to rest in that in that um, only what my eyes can see then I would fall short of having uh, faith in Christ especially in his word which says that we are united in uh, one body and one spirit that we were called in one hope of our calling that we we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all And so as we see this spiritual unity made visible, we see it made visible through common confession as we recognize there in verses four through six and this common confession then, which is common to all also has something of diversity or there's a gifts that are given to the church that is not common to all there's a diversity of gifts dispensed by our risen Lord for his purposes. And that purpose is the continuation, building up of the body of Christ as it says in um, building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of man to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ and so we continue this uh, trek through this section because Paul now turns our attention to the work of Christ in his descending and ascending as it relates to two activities, the taking captive, a host of captives, and then the giving gifts of men, our giving gifts to men. And so he does so uh, by way of expositing Psalm 68, and we'll spend some time there this morning. We recognize that uh, the question laid before us is, as we venture on in Ephesians 4, is how is this unity to be maintained? How is how is this unity to main, be maintained in the diversity of gifts that Christ gives? And how does Christ actually give gifts to men? How can we say that he does so? What is there something uh, behind it in what we would call the historia salutus in the history of salvation that Christ has accomplished and so has given him the prerogative and authority to give gifts to men well certainly the answer to those things are yes and amen in that Christ has given been given authority and does have the prerogative the question before us is then how is it been accomplished so in short it will be maintained according to the fullness of Christ who has filled all things Uh, the secondary question this morning is what has christ filled all things what does that include paul goes into a short discourse into that so follow along as i read for us ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 7 i'll read through the end of the section in verse 13 hear the word of the lord but to, teach each one of us, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression he ascended what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as a pot and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let us pause in prayer this morning oh lord we come before your word this morning we ask that you by your spirit would illuminate it to us that these concepts and these doctrines that are so readily expressed in your word would be uh, real to us by faith that we would understand them well so that we may give you greater glory and honor and praise we ask these things in the name of christ our lord amen well As often as I've moved around, uh, not only from house to house, but also within uh, my own house, as I've rearranged furniture in the houses that I've owned, it never fails that the rearranging often reveals something that I didn't realize or remember was there. Uh, before, uh, you know, it, and often these days, as with the many children I have, there's some blemish or uh, mural that was uh, so craftily made uh, that is revealed in some recesses of the corner of a closet or uh, behind some bed or in conjunction with that. But much like moving furniture, is learning uh, scripture in the same in some ways as you turn the pages of scripture and you and you go over uh the teaching of scripture it can be like rearranging furniture because as these biblical doctrines come into view and and you study them and learn them you recognize that there's things there that you had not necessarily seen before you hadn't noticed their presence until they've been grouped together in different verses or passages together and now you unlike uh necessarily my Uh, not so heartfelt appreciation for the murals of my children we take notice of the beauty of scripture we take notice of the beauty of the message of the, the redemptive work of christ things that we hadn't thought about before maybe things that we questioned as to what it meant and we quickly move on as we do and it's okay that that happens but this morning we in our passage this morning it exposes just one of those doctrines one of those doctrines that can be overlooked can be um, assigned to a place of i will all understand that uh, one day or maybe i'll understand it uh, uh differently as i as you look at it and that doctrine this morning is known as the local descent of christ the doctrine this morning known as the local descent of christ if you looked at the top of your notes which is a blank page but as it relates to the referent verses it says Ephesians 4 8 through 10 part 1 we are uh, going to go through these uh, group of verses this passage this morning twice this morning we'll uh, will attempt to get through these verses as they relate to the descending Christ the descent of Christ next week we'll look at these verses as they relate to the ascension of Christ But they both come together as a pair. Paul puts them together in scripture. He sees them together in scripture. And so they come as a pair as it relates to Christ filling all things and building up the body according to the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so this morning we are going to uh, cut short our time in this. We only address the dissension of Christ. And so that I'm clear this morning, I want to make sure that I give credit uh, where uh, this doctrine was taught to me and where I came to understand it is is from Dr. Sam Renahan and his theological interior redecorating in my theological doctrines that he's done as it relates to this doctrine, where he exposes its beauty and place within the Orthodox Christian faith in his book on the descent of Christ. Christ. Well, in short or in summary, this doctrine surmises that after Christ's death on the cross and burial in the tomb via his human soul descended into Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead, triumphantly moving through the invisible created realms, namely, as Dr. Renahan puts it, to liberate, subdue and proclaim before ascending in resurrected glory and ultimately into heaven, to the right hand of the Father on high. This doctrine relates not to the incarnation and the dissension of, of the Son of God from heaven to earth, but the dissension of the God-man Christ from the cross to the grave, to the place of the dead and then and then coupled with it as many doctrines are are the ascension from there all the way ultimately into heaven so it may be helpful to establish why why take time to teach this doctrine if it's somewhat lost or i mean it's been a lost doctrine so it seems obscure at first but i assure you that it's only because of its the lack of attention paid to it and not because of the clarity of Scripture, per se. Uh, we may ask, why teach the doctrine? Why, why go through the pains to introduce you to the local descent of Christ? There are many things we can talk about this morning. There's many things that you can hear preached this morning. This morning, we are going to talk about doctrine. Well, first and most plainly is that it's in the text. Paul says that this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of Of the earth, and he who descended is himself who also ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. We desire to understand Scripture, especially as it applies to the redemption won for us by our Lord and Savior. Second, I think it's important to teach this doctrine because we confess it with our lips in our recitation of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Who was conceived by the holy ghost born of the virgin mary suffered under pontius pilate was crucified dead and buried he descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of god the father almighty So it's important for us to give substance to our confession. We confess this, this, that he descended into hell. What does that mean? How is that derived from scripture? It's important for us to give substance to our confessing. Third, as it concerns the the gracious redemption of lost sinners, you and me. That is much encouragement to us to continue in this pilgrimage where we may see the state of our enemy because of the work of our Savior. Many conversations I've had with you all about suffering and about the trials of the tribulations of this life, oftentimes um, wrestling with this idea of spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks. It may be something good to know something of your adversary's current state something of the victor the victory won for you by your savior as we enter into these battles weekly daily <laughs> so we begin where our text begins this morning in verses in verse 8 where Paul quotes out of Psalm 68 he says therefore it says he ascended on high he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men Paul makes a direct connection between Christ descending and ascending and the gifts distributed throughout the body he does so by interpreting Psalm 68, specifically verse 18, Christologically. In doing so, he finds that Christ descending and ascending find their roots in the Old Testament scriptures. So we're gonna address the teaching of Christ's descent here in Ephesians 4, verses eight through 10, in three, under three headings, cosmologically, consecutively, and Christologically cosmologically will probably be some of the heavier lifting this morning for us when we talk about the fire hose that we're going to drink from this morning it will probably come cosmologically because as it relates to this we don't often give account as to the full creation or though all the created realms that were created by god And so as it is with any journey, it's helpful to establish a map. And that's what this cosmology will do for us. As we know, when God created, he created both seen and unseen realms. Genesis 1 sums it up with heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the unseen and the seen after the introduction of sin a third level is recognized that there's an under the earth or often put as Sheol as we see in Job chapter 11 in verse 7 where Zophar in speaking to Job asks can you discover the depths of God can you discover the limits of the almighty they are as high High as the heavens, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. What happens here in Job 11 is we see that other uh, realm introduced is that there is a deeper than Sheol, there is a, a, a under the earth. And expressing the omnipresence of God, David proclaims in Psalm 139, beginning in verse seven, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. What we see in this psalm is we have heaven with uh, a going up of ascending. We have Sheol with a going down as a making a bed. And then we have the wings of the dawn in the remotest parts of the sea. We have the heavens above. We have the earth. And then we have under the earth or Sheol. And finally, the second commandment. In the second commandment, we are told not to take for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. In this short survey, let it suffice to recognize that the created realms testified in scripture are the heavens above, the earth, and Sheol under the earth, with, with and uh, heaven and Sheol being part of the invisible realm, and so analogically located above and below. Again, when we talk about uh, the spiritual realm and we talk about spirits, we talk about about things that are immaterial so when we talk about them spatially like above and below we talk them we talk about them analogically we're not saying that heaven is somewhere if you uh, go beyond the stars eventually you'll get above and you'll make it to heaven nor would we say if you dig deep enough in the earth then you're gonna get to Sheol but as it relates to the ordering and the the uh, all created things being spatial okay they have a, loc- a locale so so is the uh, unseen realms have locales determined as above and below and so we rec- we recognize that we speak in um analogical language as we talk about above and below there are other descriptions given to sheol as, as that's our emphasis this morning and they emphasize this idea of below. It's, it's known as the pit, the deep, or the abyss. These all things you can, with a good concordance, look up and you can see all the many places that the scriptures reference these, these things, and they're all referenced as, it, as they are to uh, death to uh, uh, the place of the dead. They're also reference to the place of, uh, inhabited by other spiritual beings. Scripture also reveals there are further compartmentalizing of Sheol. Okay, if you guys are not uh, asking for a break now, then uh, I'm, I'm happy uh, that you're tracking. But I can imagine where we've established is, it could be enough and we could talk about it Uh, to the end of the evening but there's even further compartmentalizing of this place of the dead of Sheol of under the earth where we find both the souls of the dead and unholy spiritual beings there first the dead Psalm 49 beginning in verse 14 as sheep they are appointed for Sheol Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Again, we're picking up this language of the association of Sheol and dead souls. We recognize that when the body is buried in the ground, it stays in the ground, that, that it ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And yet the soul lives on. Well, in a locale sense, the soul lives on in Sheol, or at least uh, the argument is that Scripture teaches that for a time, souls lived on in sheol or or all souls lived on in sheol again we'll get there the dead are separated between righteous and wicked in sheol according to Christ's words in Luke 16 so turn with me to Luke 16 we're going to look at this parable Where we find Christ as the prophet uh, speaking truth, expositing scripture to the disciples in the form of parable, and yet based on a real cosmology, hopefully that cosmology though very briefly and in some ways very surface level, we've established at least you could say there's a foothold of this cosmology if you just go off of what I've referenced but you could definitely go and further study and see that it's more than just a foothold but it's based on a true cosmology so in chapter 16 uh, Luke chapter 16 beginning in verse 22 we have this parable of the rich man and Lazarus it says now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the toe of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and in order they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear then them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I read the full paragraph. For us to see that there is an order there. There is a upper Sheol, we could say, where the righteous dwell in a place called Abraham's bosom. This place of Abraham's bosom is a place of comfort. It's a place of rest. And then there is a chasm in a lower part. Again, analogically, there's a lower part of this place where there is filled with the wicked souls, where they're in constant torment. They find no comfort. And we surmise that they're both under because even those that he wanted to go and tell his brothers are said at the end in verse 31 that they would have to rise from the dead so they go from low to up okay again we're, we're following cosmo- cosmology, cosmology language here just to establish that here Christ expositing uh, scripture in real cosmology is saying that in the place of the dead there is at least compartmentalizing wicked souls and righteous souls one one being the righteous souls in an upper place of comfort and rest known as Abraham's bosom and another a lower place of torment and agony and judgment well, what we see here is that uh, there is even further compartmentalizing beyond that, because we see that the place f- that we see that there's a place for the righteous and the wicked souls, yet we also find present under the place for unholy. Created spiritual beings, okay, fallen angels and such, and they are fine, they're they're described as being even deeper within the pit. So again, cosmologically, we're talking, uh, we'll, we'll have reached a third level of hell, if you will, or a third level of Hades. We do so by way of establishing this idea of under the earth in other places in scripture. You can also look up lower parts of the earth as we have in our uh, description in Ephesians chapter four. This is where we're, we're um, Let me throw a, a line back to our passage this morning so that we may see that we're going somewhere we're establishing something so that when we when it's presented and we see the history of salvation as it relates to these unseen realms we may give great praise and honor to our savior who has gone to these places as I'm trying to establish turn to Isaiah chapter 14 as it relates to deeper within this pit You notice we're establishing much of this doctrine currently out of the Old Testament there's much to be read in the Old Testament about this because in the Old Testament they're anticipating liberation from these places or they're anticipating victory in these places in in uh, Isaiah chapter 14 we have the taunting against the king of Babylon That there is a prophecy that the quintessential enemy of God's people, Babylon, the one who eventually invades and destroys the temple, is now put in a position where, or will eventually be put in a position by their king so that Israel may say to them these words of taunt. It says that, uh, that, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon in verse 4. It says in verse 9 that Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have made, been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering." How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you, have, who, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and I will make myself like the Most High." Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recess of the pit. Those you see you will gaze at you and they will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, and who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? Again, as we look at this, we see there's this interplay between the king of Babylon and, and a seemingly greater adversary. One who uh, uh, attended to uh, surmount heaven, to supplant God, and then was cast down into the recesses of the pit. Many liken that to Satan. We can see the connection there, especially as we recognize other language in reference to that in the apocalyptic uh, books which we are turning to next turn with me to Revelation chapter 9 I kind of feel like a physical trainer who warned you before hey this is gonna be a tough workout and I hopefully I think I'm not letting you down though you may not have been looking forward to it Revelation chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Again, important detail here is that there's this uh, key that's evidently given to the bottomless pit that's given to this fallen angel. He opened the bottomless pit. Are given to this angel excuse me and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the Sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit again we won't take time to fully extrapolate this understanding of Revelation 9 but what we just want to recognize is the cosmology there that there is a pit and then there's the bottomless pit there's there is a recesses of the pit because there's one more locale attributed to the farthest reaches of the pit. This has been known in historical theology as Tartarus. They get the word from Greek mythology, and Greek mythology ta- taught that Tartarus was the deepest part of Hades. Now again, we don't go to Greek mythology to learn something that's revealed in special revelation. But understanding the context by which Paul or Peter writes in 2 Peter two, which is where we're going next, will help us understand why he verbalizes this location, Tartarus. He says, for God did not spare angels in 2 Peter 2, 4, when they sinned, but cast them in the hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. This pits of darkness is the verbal form of the Greek word Tartarus. In other words, they were Tartarized. So that's why in historical theology or, or in the writings of the church, they reference the deepest part of Hades as this place called tartarus reserved for rebellious angels reserved for these uh these angels that were not spared but they sinned and they were cast down into this place so we have when Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 4 back we're going hopefully made a circuit here back to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 9 that Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth that we have a place biblically that fits the lower parts of the earth that Christ would descend into the lower parts of the earth, that we would have a cosmology for such a place. So then, the question is, what was Christ's activity during His descent? Because He doesn't go, we have to affirm what Scripture affirms, when Christ on the cross gives up His Spirit to the Father, And and he turns it over not in the sense again we we, I won't go into all the arguments against uh, the descent of Christ but just suffice to say when Christ finishes his work on the cross he says it is finished there's no more work to be done but what happens is a king wins a victory and he goes on a victory circuit he goes on a victory tour So Christ, the conquering king, defeats the serpent of old, crushes the head of the serpent. He goes on a victory tour. He goes on a victory tour into the lower parts of the earth. Why does he go there? Well, it would help for us then to take now our map of of, a, of the cosmology and now create a sequential map of order of actions. What is this victory tour that Christ goes on into the lower parts of the earth? What bearing does it have upon this leading captive a host of captives and giving gifts to men? And then finally, the fullness of Christ? or well, consecutively, Can I give any better titles than what Dr. Renahan uses in in his book, which uh, he uses from another man named Thomas Bilson, that there are three actions as a part of this tour. There are liberate, subdue, and proclaim. First, Christ liberates the saints of old and plunders upper Sheol. Abraham's bosom. They were held there. Again, um, they had every right to heaven because of Christ, because of their faith in Christ. They had every right to the full grace. As a matter of fact, they have every right to the new heavens and the new earth. Yet in historical succession, as we see scripture working, we find that they weren't fully given it until a time as such as when Christ Completes his work. So we need not despair that there was a time when these souls of the saints of old existed in comfort and rest in Sheol, and they're described as captives. For Christ was working out the history of salvation in, in both the seen world, as we see in, this, in the Gospels, and the unseen world, as we see here explained in the consecutive work of Christ, or the consecutive actions of Christ. Christ liberates the saints of old and plunders Sheol. Paul, quoting Psalm 68, 18. He does so, and he makes actually explicit changes. I want want to keep keep a finger in um, Ephesians 4 and turn to Psalm 68. Here in the NASB, they uh, preserve the uh, Masoretic text in the Old Testament. Again, uh, uh, textual uh, criticism. We look at it. What what were the extent texts that are translated into our English? There's a collection of works called the Masoretic texts. here in Psalm 18. It's translated from the Hebrew. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there We go back to Ephesians 4. We say we read Paul saying, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We recognize that Paul, in quoting Psalm 68, does so with some uh, intentional changes that we will address uh, later on in the sermon, that I'll address later on in the sermon, but suffice to say now, he addresses Psalm 68 from the position that it's speaking about Christ. That the psalm tells of God's victory over Israel and these victories climax in verse 18. That there's a many-peaked mountain that is plundered. Because if we continue to read on, um, you begin in verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks? the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. This where God dwells in the Psalms is consistently Mount Zion. It's also seen um, uh, concentratedly in the sanctuary or in the temple, as we'll see later on in Psalm 68. So it says that you have ascended on high Again, you had led captive your captives. You received gifts among men, verse 18, Each among the, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord belongs, escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies. The hairy crown of him who goes, into, goes on his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. That your foot may shatter them in blood. The tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King. Remember that victory tour? And where does the victory tour end? Into the sanctuary. We recognize what we see here is that... Paul, in expositing Psalm 68, he converts the language, as we'll talk about later, but he uses it to see sequentially Christ's victory tour from the cross descending into the lower parts of the earth and then eventually ascending into heaven. He uses this messianic psalm to show that there is liberation prior to the distribution of gifts, right? Because he he makes emphasis. He led captive a host of captives and he gives gifts to men. I would say that in those two phrases are summed up the descent and the ascending. That in leading captive a host of captives is is the descent though it it is it has a reference of leading up it is a uh, it is a descent as implied descent because he says he is he he explains it in verse 9 now this expression he ascended what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth so in other scriptures we are given more clarity to this order of events we have the liberating of these souls of these captives not only does the lord liberate those fallen asleep prior to the promise given or the promise accomplished but he also subdues the strong man and binds satan triumphantly taking the keys of death and hades turn with me back to revelation chapter one And I'll give you some encouragement. I'm sweating too. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Again where are where do these keys come from where, where what is the what is the idea of the, the keys of death and hades there's a, there's an idea that he came and he plundered he took something from uh, someone and again though enigmatic in In our uh, modern Baptist times, widely debated, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain is in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed and after these things he must be released for a short time What I want us to see there is that there's an angel, at the very least, who is able, if it's it's only an angel, is able to take Satan, that great serpent of old, and bind him for a thousand years. We may even say, even if it it could even be Christ, because now this angel has the key of the abyss. Where did the angel get the key? If it wasn't, it could have been passed on from Christ to the angel, and, and this is his assignment for sure. But at the very least, either the angel goes in the stead of Christ, or Christ comes as the angel of the Lord and subdues Satan. He doesn't come and they're not waging a battle here. You don't get the idea that Satan in this passage is putting up a fight at all. Satan's head has been crushed. His sentence has been given. He is a defeated foe who is then restricted and restrained from being freed to do as he pleases. Well, finally, not only does Christ liberate, not only does Christ subdue, But he proclaims his victory over his enemies and those that sought to supplant him. Again, uh, we won't have time to go there, but think of the parable of the tenants right and the uh, the landowner sends messengers to receive the harvest and each messenger is turned away either either whipped or or um, severely beaten and then finally the owner says I will send my son they will they will listen to my son they will they will they will honor my son and what happens when the tenants see the son coming they say there's the son there is the air if we undo him or if we kill him then it will be ours there was a supplanting there and jesus said to the jewish leaders that they were of their father the devil so we can interchange those between the jewish leaders who uh, christ was had had in the crosshairs and then by implication to satan himself who they were acting on his behalf There's this desire for these unholy beings, spiritual beings, these angels to supplant Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, we have testimony of Christ's triumph, proclamation of triumph over them. In 1 Peter 3, verses 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient with, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Consider Paul, our Christ goes and he preaches victory over these unholy spirits, these unholy angels and beings. He doesn't go to evangelize them. He doesn't go to give them one last chance. He goes and says, what had been promised from Genesis 3, from the garden on, has now been accomplished. What you sought to supplant, you have lost. You are defeated. I have won. It is a victory tour of Christ. Last point, we'll answer briefly how is it that Paul utilizes Psalm 68 so directly to Christ. On well, in short, he utilizes a Christocentric hermeneutic. We've established that there's a cosmology of of heaven and earth and under the earth, hopefully even with greater detail of under the earth, having further compartmentalizing, so that when Paul references Christ entering into these unseen realms, these lower parts of the earth, we understand that he goes there not to continue a work, but as, as it's explained, as an initiation of his exaltation. Because he's on a victory tour, he goes to uh, liberate, he goes to subdue, and he goes to proclaim. Well, Paul utilizes a Christocentric hermeneutic and uh, when he applies it to Psalm 68. John Gill says there the psalmist in Psalm 68 in the Old Testament speaks to the Messiah. Here the apostle speaks of him. Paul, recognizing his place in redemptive history because he's speaking about what we call the history of salvation. It, it, God working his salvation in history. He speaks of this psalm by looking back. Where the, other, where the Psalm looked forward. It spoke to the Messiah. Here the Apostle speaks of the Messiah. Well, the Spirit revealed previously, or the Spirit had previously revealed in type and shadow the descent of Christ. He, the lower parts of the earth were anticipated, they anticipated liberation. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth in a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Again, here is the anticipation that the lower parts of the earth would shout joyfully. Who would shout joyfully if not those that are liberated from those lower parts? When? after the death after the expiation of sins after the sins uh, are wiped out the Messiah said himself that he was gonna be like Jonah and spend three nights in the heart of the earth in Matthew 12 38 he tells a rebellious generation who does demand a sign he says you will receive no sign except the sign of jo- Jonah and just as he was three nights in the belly of a fish so I will spend three nights in the heart of the earth again speaking cosmologically and the Psalms testify that the Messiah would not be abandoned that the Messiah's soul would not be abandoned or left in Sheol psalm 16 verse 10 i'll turn there because it's important to recognize what happens here is if we understand this if we're putting all these all this furniture together in this formation and seeing this anew i want you to see in psalm 16 verse 10 the word soul for you will not abandon my soul to sheol nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand are there are pleasures forevermore again if we put these things all together these other verses together we see that there is a soul that's not left in sheol there is a a holy one that doesn't undergo decay Because there is no decay that can stick to the perfect, righteous soul of Christ, human soul of Christ, certainly uh, to the divinity of Christ either. And then there is a presence, a fullness. And then there's a right hand where pleasures are forevermore. There's another one that that takes a little bit longer to discuss. And I'm just going to drop it in the bucket here and and we can talk about it after service. But it's the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And I found that an explanation of the two goats where one is went and sacrificed at the altar and then the other one is left and the scapegoat is released into the wilderness into a specific place to a place called azazel a place known to be one of uh, supposedly the gate of death so there's one that goes and the blood is spilt a goat for atonement and then there's one a goat that goes into death A debt of blood to God a debt of death to Sheol here we see Christ fulfilling both in his person fulfilling it as a offering up himself as the perfect sacrifice and in himself going and descending into death to break the chains to to subdue to to take the keys of death and Haiti and victory And I think we can make some concluding comments this morning. Hopefully we can draw some sort of loop here so that we may uh, be encouraged this morning, as I said uh, I wanted us to be, over the redemption of our Savior, or the redemption won by our Savior. There are uh, four passages I want to look at as concluding comments. The first one is in Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse five for when they maintain this it escapes their notice by the word of god that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men but not but do not let this one fact escape your notice beloved that with the lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance <laughs> As we consider the descent of our Lord, we consider that as the victory tour of Christ. That he doesn't just come with the victory of death and Hades, but he comes with all authority of heaven and earth. A rightful response to those who have yet to put faith in this risen Lord who was once descended and is now ascended is repentance for surely as he has descended and ascended he will come again not giving gifts to men not necessarily leading captive a host of captives but coming coming to judge the living and the dead if you consider this doctrine in its place in the history of salvation, consider that if you have not repented to Christ, there is no time like the present. Next, as we read other places in Scripture, we would see how, how much they come to life in the fullness of this doctrine or in the fullness of the doctrine of Christ's descent and ascent. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I don't want to cut short this encouragement so i appreciate your patience second corinthians 4 verse 16 consider our risen lord consider our victorious lord who descended and ascended. therefore we do not lose heart but through our outer man though our outer man is decaying yet our inner man is being renewed day by day <clears throat> For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven inasmuch as we having put it on will not be found naked for indeed while we are in this tent we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. Again, gifts won by our Lord who descended and ascended is his spirit as a pledge that though we see in this body, in this tent decay, we experience in this life trials and tribulations. Many groanings to be had. Our hope and our fuller hope, I think, is that we have a Christ who fills all, both heavens above, and He took our very presence, our our human soul, a human soul into the lowest parts and has come back so that we may never experience these things such that in 1 Corinthians 15 certainly we all will will die and the, the corruptible will put on incorruptible as this says the the mortal mortal will give way to a, a life but the conclusion, First Corinthians fifteen, verse fifty. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last tri- trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O oh, death where is your victory O oh, death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ Maybe we revel in the victory won by our God in his, or in his victory tour of his descending into the lower parts of the earth. How fuller of a victory is that when we consider and we can proclaim death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It is nowhere for it has been devoided of its sting by our very Savior's presence. And finally, in Revelation chapter five. Mm -hmm. Revelation chapter five, beginning in verse nine. Well, we can first see in verse one, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this book and to break it sealed? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. And so was able to open the book and its seven seals. And further on, now these creatures are singing a new song saying, Worthy are you who take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people. and."